1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through to 58. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spirit that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Over the last couple of weeks we've been learning about death, dying and what happens between the time that we die and that time when Jesus returns with his, um, the resurrection that happens when Jesus returns. And as disciples of Jesus, we believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. 
Right? The Christian understanding of eternal life, it isn't that we're going to be some kind of free or floating spirit. Uh, we're not going to become a star up in the sky like some people like to tell their kids. We're not going to be bouncing around in the clouds like the cartoonists like to draw. Uh, we won't be absorbed into some kind of mega spirit like a lot of the Eastern religions believe. We believe in the resurrection of the body. God will create a new heaven and a new earth and we're going to be living on this beautiful new earth. We're going to be living with Christ and we're going to be living in our new glorified bodies. Uh, but the resurrection of the body, uh, it, to many people it just sounds just so ridiculous. I mean, you know as well as I do what a rotting carcass looks like. You can't live at St George and not know what it looks like. A dead rue on the side of the road few days in the hot sun and it decomposes pretty jolly quickly. And, and who could possibly envisage a dead carcass that's been eaten by bugs and bacteria coming back to life again? It, it doesn't sound particularly glorious, does it? It sounds more like the zombie apocalypse or something. And, and when Paul wrote this, he was writing to a people who were in the Greek culture and to the Greeks and their philosophy, the whole notion of the resurrection of the dead was a complete and utter nonsense. You know, they, they actually wanted to be free from the body. They thought that the body was that thing which was holding them back. And they wanted to evolve into some kind of higher spiritual being. That was their hope. And so he preempts what most good Greeks would ask. Well, how are the dead raised? And, and you've got you to imagine this, right? If he was getting asked this question, you've got to realise that these people would be mocking him because their firm belief is that the body wouldn't be raised. How are the dead raised? And what kind of body would the dead have? And just as their question of him might have been mocking, um, his answer's pretty hard as well. Our, in, our English translations say, you foolish person. Uh, maybe a translation, better translation might be something like, you idiot. Right? Don't you get it? It's just so scathing. What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. I mean, we see this happening all the time in our own gardens at home. Um, you take a seed and you plant it. Now, the seed, we know that it's not dead, but it looks like it's dead, doesn't it? It's all dried and shriveled up, and you put it into the soil. And given the right conditions and not very much time, it sprouts it pokes through this earth, and then eventually it grows into this beautiful new green plant. And what about the annual crops we grow? You, you can't plant another wheat plant until the first plant reaches physiological maturity and it dies. Only then can we take that hard, dry seed and put it in the ground and let it live again. And it grows into new life. And just like that, our bodies die. We get planted in the ground and one day we'll be raised to glorious new life again. But the second part of the question was, what kind of body will the dead have? And he gives us an example of how even in our world now, there's all different types of bodies. God creates different types of bodies for different purposes. We see it in God's creation all the time. He designed birds to fly. 
and he gave them wings and he gave them feathers. He designed some animals to live in the snow and he gave them fur. A few of you might like to have a bit of fur on mornings like this morning. He designed some animals to swim in the sea and so he gave them fins. He designed monkeys to swing in the tree and he gave them a tail. Some animals are designed to hunt by night. Others he designed so that they can hide from the hunter and he gave them various types of camouflage. God created different animals with different bodies for different environments. And here's the thing. The bodies that you and I have now, well, they might be suitable for this earth. They might be okay for this environment, but they're not suitable for eternity. Verse 50 says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Our bodies, they're not up to it, you see. I'm not even 50 years old yet, and I already get aches and pains. Um, I have a fused ankle, had an accident once, and, and, and they tried to repair my ankle, but it wouldn't repair, and they said, the best we can do for you is fuse it. So they joined it all up, and it'll never bend again. And I get a few aches and pains there. Now, that's the best the doctors could do, but I'm so glad that they were able to do that. If that happened, like, a hundred years ago, I probably actually would have died of an infection because when I broke it, the bone stuck out through the side and, and that just makes, makes a mess, doesn't it? And if I was back in Jesus' day, I would be the lame man on the side of the road calling out, mercy, son of David, have mercy on me. Our bodies are weak and fragile, but even without the accident, I'm not as strong as what I was 10 years ago. And probably in 10 years' time, I reckon I won't be as strong as I am now. Uh, I, I actually did a bit of looking up on this. I did a bit of a search. How old are you when your body starts to degrade? And one news article I read summed it up. It said, most bodily functions peak shortly before age 30. And then we start going downhill. So, if you're in your late 20s, and you feel that your body just isn't quite as resilient as what it used to be, guess what? It's not. And if you're in your 70s or your 80s and you might be feeling that your body's starting to get a bit worn out, guess what, Roy? It is. It is getting worn out. You see, our bodies are not designed for eternity. Our bodies are perishable. They have a use-by date. They certainly have a best before date. And a lot of us might have, no, I've, I've gone past the best before date. I'm not going to say any of you have. Our bodies are perishable. To join Jesus in his glorious new kingdom, we've got to turn up with the right equipment. We have to have a body that's suitable for glory. We have to have a body that's not going to perish we have to receive a glorified body, an eternal body, a body that never gets old, a body that never gets tired, a body that never gets sick or wears out or dies. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable, a body that won't perish. Imagine that. Who wants one of them? Who wants a body that's not going to get sick? Yep. Who wants a body that's not going to get tired or worn out or die? Some of you do. Some of you haven't yet put up your hands. I don't know. I, I, need, I need to go to a salesman's course or something. Now, these bodies, they're on offer here today. 
They're on offer. I can't sell one to you, and you'll just have to wait till you get it. But they're on offer. It is sown in dishonour. Why do we bury bodies? Or why do we burn them? Very practical reason. We can't bear the stench. You know, um, we can't bear to see our loved ones decomposing. But what is sown in dishonour, right? No matter how pompous the funeral might be, no matter how grand the headstone might be, or anyone ever been to Air and seen those little marble and glass houses they build for the dead people there? Mausoleums, they call them, I think. Roy's been there, he's seen it. I couldn't believe it. The, some in Stanthorpe, yep, yep. But no matter how grand the mausoleum or the gravestone or even the, the, the coffin or the casket, well, basically what we're doing is we're disposing of a body. When you dispose of a body, there's nothing honourable about that. You're just putting it somewhere where you don't have to see it and you don't have to smell it. But what is sown in dishonour is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. Even the toughest of men aren't strong enough to live on. Their bodies weaken and they die. The battlefields are strewn with the toughest of men whose bodies weren't strong enough. The hospital wards are filled with the aged or the infirmed relying on machines or medications to prolong their life. Even those who are obsessed with their health, those who will only ever put into their bodies what they consider to be the most, the most pure and the most natural of foods, and those people who push themselves to exercise and exercise to keep themselves young, but in the end, they won't be strong enough either. Their bodies weaken and their bodies die. Unless Jesus returns before we die, none of us are strong enough to beat death. I'm not, and neither are you. Your body and my body will be sown in weakness. But the body that is raised to eternal life is raised in power. The power of God is what will raise us and our bodies won't be feeble or weak anymore. Our natural body dies, but it will be raised to spiritual body. Paul has a bit of a favourite analogy that he uses sometimes. It's the comparison between the first man and the last man. The first Adam and the last Adam. It's the comparison between the natural man and the spiritual man, between the original human and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning, God created man in his own image. He created him from dirt and he named him dirt. You thought I was going to say Adam, didn't you? Well, I did. The construction of the Hebrew word Adam which means man or mankind, or the personal name Adam, is so close to the Hebrew word for dirt, Adama. It's like saying dirt man or earth person or earthling. 
Um, and if you're seeing the things up there and you're trying to make sense of it, Hebrew you read from right to left, right? So you see it starts out from the right and heads off to the left. It's basically exactly the same word until it gets to the end. Even if you can't pronounce it, you can see the similarity there. Adam versus Adama. Uh, the, the first man, Adam, was not a spiritual man. He was made out of dirt. That's his ingredients. And guess what? That's our, our ingredients too. If you were to analyse the chemical composition of our bodies, there is not a single element in our bodies that cannot be found in the crust of the earth. We were supernaturally created, sure enough, by, but we were created as physical beings. But Jesus wasn't. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus Christ has forever been. Jesus Christ was present at the creation of the world. Jesus Christ is the creator. He is above nature. He is beyond nature. He is the spirit who has always been. No physical human being had the capacity to save us from our sin. Only the spiritual man could ever do that. When God created Adam, he took the dirt and created him into a physical being, and he breathed ruah, breath or spirit, into him. Right? So he created him, this physical being, out of dirt, and then breathed spirit into him. But when Jesus was born, he was already spirit. He started as spirit. And God, who is spirit, put on a physical body. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You know, some people think of God as being this big, nasty, spoil-sport piece of work who's, who's just waiting for an opportunity to squash us all like bugs. That couldn't be further from the truth. That's not what God is like. Jesus came as a life-giving spirit. The bodies that we have now are bodies like Adam had, bodies made of dust that will return to dust. But when we are raised, we will have a new glorified body, a body like the glorified body of our Lord Jesus Christ, a spiritual body. How, you might ask, how are we going to make this transition? Paul says, look, I'll tell you a mystery. Now, I'd better explain that word mystery. Um, the Greek word is mysterion. Now, usually when we think of a mystery, we think of a mystery as something which we couldn't possibly understand. It's a mystery. We just we will never get it. We, we could never fathom but when, when Paul uses this word mysterion, it's more like a secret. It's like he's saying, let me let you in on a little secret. I'll tell you a little secret. It's something which used to be hidden, but now it's been revealed. Before someone comes to faith in Jesus, the whole death, dying, resurrection thing can be an utter mystery. And people just guess or they make up their own ideas of what's going to happen after death. It's the great unknown. 
But when we respond to the gospel and when we become disciples of Jesus, he opens our eyes and he lets us in on this little secret. And here it is. We shall not all sleep. Death isn't the final end. We don't just go into an eternal nothingness. Not even our bodies go into an eternal nothingness. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. Resurrection is going to be a very noisy event. Shouts of angels and blastings of trumpets. I heard one preacher say it's going to be loud enough to wake the dead. And it will. We will be changed. Just like that. In a moment. In a twinkling of the eye. It doesn't take eons for God to, to make one body from another. Or to take one species and turn it into another. I believe that our God is as mighty as what his word reveals. That our God is mighty enough to create all of the different animals in one day. Creating bodies isn't anything new for God. It's not difficult at all for God. And on the day of the resurrection, he will create for us new glorious resurrected bodies in a period of time that is so minuscule it cannot be divided. Right, the Greek word for that period of time is atomo. And you guessed it, it's atomo is the word from which we get our word atom. Right, so years ago when scientists first discovered this thing called an atom, they thought, there you go, that's the smallest building block of life. That, that's, the, that, that's the smallest thing. We couldn't possibly split it. Of course, we now know that they can. But because they thought it couldn't be split, they called it an atom. Atomo, this same word. In an, in an instant, this is going to happen. One millisecond, our bodies will be corrupt and decayed. The next millisecond, we will be resurrected and glorious. You're not actually going to have time. Anybody that sort of thinks, oh, I'll start seeing all these resurrections happening and I might quickly give my life to Jesus then. I don't think that's going to be quick enough. Done. Everybody raised from the dead who's going to be raised. Isn't that wonderful? Our current mortal bodies will become immortal. That simply means that our bodies that are now subject to death will no longer be able to die. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is it? What is the power of death over the body? If on the day of the resurrection, we are given immortal bodies, what's the bother with death? Where's its power? The sting of death is sin. Death is swallowed up in victory, but only if sin is dealt with. In Romans chapter 6, we read, for the wages of sin is death. Our life of sin our sinful attitude earns us a wage. And what's that wage? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the worldly attitude is, well, if God loves me, surely he'll just accept me as I am. And God will give me eternal life too, because that's what a loving God would do. My sin won't be an issue. But God can't just ignore sin. Because our God is a just God. There is a zero tolerance policy for sin in God's glorious new heaven and earth. If the new earth was a place where sin was allowed to exist or allowed to come in, it wouldn't be new. It would just be the same old, same old. It would be the same old pain. It would be the same old bickering. It would be the same old fighting, the same old wars. It would be the same old hatred. It would be the same old, same old. It would be the same old death and dying. The sting of death is sin. But the power of sin is the law. That's deep. What's he trying to say there? Aren't we taught in the Bible that God's law is a wonderful thing? In the Bible study groups at the moment, we're looking at Psalm 119, and it seems over and over again it talks how wonderful, it talks about how wonderful and beautiful God's law is. God's wonderful, wonderful, beautiful, life-giving law, and yet God's law is the power of sin. What's that about? God's law reveals our true nature. God's law is divine. It is holy. It is righteous. It is good. But the law can't save us. It just reveals where the problem is. God's law reveals how utterly sinful we are. If I just break one single commandment of God, I'm a sinner. King David used to write songs about how beautiful God's law was. And yet there were times when God's law would cut him so deep that he would fall on the ground in the dust and pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. How good does someone have to be to earn eternal life? Um, there are two types of funerals for a pastor to take. Some I don't mind taking, some I don't like taking at all. I actually love taking the funeral of a Christian, strong Christian, because we... We can just proclaim the truth and the hope. But for me, there's nothing more hopeless than taking the funeral of, of someone who, for their whole life and right up to their dying breath, rejected God and, in some cases, absolutely anti-God. And yet, the family is still looking for hope. And they usually, most of us, come. most people in the world come to the position, well, ah, oh, no, they're actually a pretty good person. You know, by our standards, they're a good person. And they find that to be their hope. God will welcome them into his kingdom. But how good does someone have to be to earn eternal life? Well, the answer to that is actually pretty easy. If you want to earn eternal life, all you have to do is love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength and love your neighbour as much as you love yourself. 
Right? Jesus told us that sums up all of the law and all of the prophets. And all you have to do is do this. Love God with every part of your being and love others and never not do that. And never, ever put yourself before God. And never, ever put yourself before somebody else. And voila, you've earned your way to heaven. But how are you going with that? You going all right with that? Of course not. Who can do that? No one. The only one who could do it was the spiritual man, Jesus Christ. The law condemns us. The law reveals the sin that is part of our true nature. Oh boy, that those who are self-righteous don't want to be told this. Uh, even churches today are redefining sin. You see, we don't want to rely on grace. We don't want to have to repent of sin. We don't want the law to tell us that we're sinners. And so even churches today are attempting to redefine the law and to redefine God's word, to re redefine what is sin and what is not sin. You see, the demonic lie is you can break the power of sin by redefining the law. But that in itself is the grossest sin. Imagine the arrogance to say to God, well, God, your definition of sin is not a very good one. It's, it's a bit too restrictive. You, you just didn't know what you were talking about, but we know better now. We have more science and stuff. And you're not a very good lawmaker, God. I might just tweak it a little bit. Can you imagine the arrogance of that? And we saw it just happen again just in the last week when a major denominational church decided that they would begin to celebrate same-sex marriages in this country. What a perversion of God's law. What a perversion of God's good gift of marriage. You see, the demonic lie is you can break the power of sin by redefining the law. Just convince yourself that you're okay. Believe that you're a good person and that God should be very honoured to have you in his glorious new kingdom and then you won't have to worry about the sting of death. That's the lie of the devil. God's solution is that the sting of death is removed, the power of sin is broken by pardoning sin. Man's answer is to condone sin. God's answer is to pardon sin. Eternal life is neither deserved nor is it earned. On my own merit, I deserve to go to hell. And on your own merit, you do too. And unless we can accept that truth, then we're not in the right place to receive salvation. It's not the self-righteous who find eternal life. It's the repentant. It's the broken, humble, repentant sinner who falls on his knees or falls on her knees before God and cries, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It is to agree with God. God, I agree with your law. It reveals my true nature. I'm a sinner. 
I agree that I've done gross wrong. I've embraced evil and rejected good. I, I repent of my sin. I turn away from it. I put myself at your mercy and I plead for your forgiveness. I have to come to that place where I realise that I am the grossest of sinner. It's easy to point our fingers at other people and say, oh, look at that person. They're so much more sinful than I. They're not. It's just a different sin. We all have to realise that we are the grossest of sinners and that without Christ, we're lost. And so we repent of our sin and we fall at the feet of Christ, our only hope, the only source of life for us. And when we repent of our sin and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, we're forgiven. Sin is pardoned. The law has done its job. It's revealed my sin. I've repented of sin. God's forgiven my sin. And in Christ, we have life. Pure, holy, spiritual, eternal. And the very worst of sinners are exactly the same as us. Because guess what? We are the very worst of sinners. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it wonderful? This is why it's called the gospel. This is why it's called the good news. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 58 begins with the word, therefore. Now, I do hope that when you're reading your Bible, that if you ever see that word, therefore, that you take lots of special notice of it. Because whenever we're reading the scriptures and we see the word therefore, it's usually either going to be telling us another great theological truth to build on something that God's already revealed to us, or it's going to give us a very important practical application of what we've just heard. And here we have the latter. Therefore, right? So because God gives us victory over death through Jesus Christ, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Here we're given three commands. Be steadfast, be immovable, and always doing lots of work for the Lord. And I reckon I need to clear something up here. There are two opposite errors that we can fall into when it comes to the notion of works and salvation. The first error is the one which is most common in the society in which we live. Um, it's the belief that if I do enough good stuff, then I will earn eternal life, right? And we would call that works by salva uh, salvation by works understanding. And it's an error. The second is the opposite. The second is an easy believism that's being preached in many growing churches today. The belief that all I have to do is believe Jesus died for my sins and accept his saving work on the cross. Right? It's a belief that says you don't have to change. You can stay pretty much as you are. If God wants you to change, he will do that for you. You don't have to play any part in that. And it's a belief that says that labouring for God is trying to earn your way to heaven. 
and they would call that salvation by works as well instead of salvation by grace. Now, the truth is we are saved by grace. We can't do anything to earn our salvation, but we are not saved to stay the same. We are not saved from sin so we can go back to sin. And when we're saved to be involved in the work of the Lord, even labouring to the point of weariness, is not in vain. We've been saved by Christ and we love Christ and so we serve Christ. While we await the day of the resurrection, how should we live? Be steadfast. That means to stand on a firm foundation and not be shifted from it. What's our foundation? Not a rhetorical question. What's our foundation? Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ is our foundation. Stand firm on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never give up. Never lose faith. Never deny Jesus. Jesus told us that many will fall away. The love of many will grow cold. Let's not be one of the many. Be steadfast. Be immovable. That means don't waver in what we believe. Jesus warned us that there would come false prophets, people who would try and lead us away from the truth. Be immovable. Don't be double-minded. Don't waver. And work. No preacher ever wants to be that pastor who's always putting the guilt trip on the congregation to work harder, do better, um, put in a bit more effort. We need more Sunday school teachers. Oh, by the way, we do need more Sunday school teachers. Uh, <laughs> we need more Sunday school teachers. We need more RE teachers. We need people to lead the youth group. We need somebody to do the catering. Nobody wants to be that pastor. But even more so than this, no preacher ever wants to be accused of preaching a works-based gospel. And I have seen um, the way that some people are so quick to point the finger at somebody and say, oh, they're just preaching salvation by works, when often it's not. And, and preachers get so scared. This is probably a new thing for you guys. You probably don't realise this. But preachers are so scared of what other preachers think about them or what other people think about them that preachers so very rarely preach and teach this very important biblical truth. But for me to do justice to God's word this morning, I have to share with you this command. It says, Be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. That means excel, be full and overflowing, never ceasing to be doing the work of the Lord. Do oodles of it, right? That's the command. Do oodles of the work of the Lord. By the grace of Christ, we have been saved to eternal life. Therefore, the life of the redeemed is a life of activity for the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. 
It's not worthless. It's never worthless. The Lord's laborers will always be rewarded. Eternal life compels us to be steadfast, immovable, and to tirelessly serve the Lord. It's a compulsion that we have. Do we feel that compulsion? That's the question. Do we feel that compulsion? Those who have an eternal perspective will feel that compulsion. If we're living without an eternal perspective, well, the work of the Lord and standing steadfast and whatnot, that all sort of just fades into the background. But when we're living with an eternal perspective, we'll have this compulsion to be steadfast. We have this compulsion to be immovable. We have this compulsion to do oodles of work in serving the Lord. Don't fight it. It's a compulsion of the Spirit of God. And any work that we do for the building of God's eternal kingdom doesn't go unrewarded. His eternal spirit compels us. Does anybody have any questions? Okay, so Neil said, said, so you're still saying that works is still a very big part of our faith, it's just not what saves us. Exactly. Exactly. We are saved by realising that my works will never save me. And before Christ... Before God, I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel, dirty, rotten sinner, and just falling down at the mercy of God. And Jesus deals with our sins. That's what the cross was all about. Um, so we are saved not by doing good works, but we are saved to do good works. And, um, yeah, that's all part of discipleship. Living as a disciple of Jesus is doing good works as we stand in the faith that has saved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to... Lord, I want to thank you for your glorious plan. You have a way of leaving the best to last. You've given us these bodies now, and they are amazing, but we know that they're not going to stand the test of time. We all have loved ones who have died, and we realise that we'll be amongst them unless you return before we do. But Lord, we really look forward to that glorious day when, when you will raise us from the dead, when our sin will be dealt with totally and completely, our, our bodies will be raised imperishable. But Lord, the best part of that is not going to be about us, it's going to be all about you, being in your presence, Lord. And Lord, I want to thank you that that's something that even starts now. Your Holy Spirit is in us now. And Lord, I want to thank you that, that we can start to grow closer and closer to you now and getting to know you better and better. And Lord, I want to thank you for the testimony of the older folk I know who have sort of shared with me that in the past that as they, that as they get closer and closer to the day of their death and as they get to know you more and more, their eyes just become fixated more and more on the eternal glory and, and looking forward to being in your presence in a new way. Lord, what a, what a witness that is for us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us 
as your disciples, as the disciples of Jesus, to become a people with an eternal perspective, always living um, with that eternal perspective in mind, not living for today, but living for that day when, when you return. Lord, help us to be steadfast, immovable, and to never tire of your work, knowing that it will be rewarded. In Jesus' name, amen.